So we're continuing on. So we see that God is the God of everywhere. He's everywhere. He knows all. He is all. And Paul said, we live and move and have our life existing in him. So even the worst sinner, he is not aware of God. And spiritually, God's as far away from him as almost possible, especially the people in hell and the devil. But he's still right there. They could not even exist in wickedness in their nature without him allowing it. That's why the lake of fire is the wrath of God. He is the consuming fire. His wrath and anger and vengeance will be expressed toward them for eternity. There is nowhere that God is not. And evil must always be avenged by God's holiness. Eventually, that's the end, okay? So he's the only God. All others that claim to be gods are false and they're liars. Thus, God hates idolatry, Uh the worshiping of other beings or things as God. Paul and Scripture and Jesus himself, those who love money and are covetous, some of these prosperity people, materialistically, earthly minded, he calls them idolatrous. And he said, and you know no idolatry will enter the kingdom of heaven. And Jesus said, you cannot worship God and Mammon. Mammon was considered the demon of riches, the God of riches. And Jesus says, you can't worship both. So many people are given over to covetousness, and their lying shepherds tell them God wants them to prosper here in everything. They've been lied to. Uh-huh. They're materialistic and greedy and covetousness. The money uses them. They don't use the money. See? Everything is neutral for the Christian to use. It's how it's used that makes it evil, whether it's money or sex or power. It's how it's used that God will determine the action and whether it's sin or not. So when God uses the word transgression, it means he sets rules and regulations the people are to abide and live in that position. And the angels left their habitation, the scripture said. He appointed them at certain positions and standing, and they removed themselves, and they sided with Lucifer, and he wanted to be God in himself. He wanted to be another God. And he said, I will do this, and I will set my throne, and blah, blah, blah. And instead of being the light bearer, he became the prince of darkness. Because once God decided to make an end of it, and he tested them, and they failed. Instantly, Jesus said, I saw Satan fall from heaven like lightning. It was instant. And all of a sudden, none of these holy angels were holy anymore. Everything good in them was removed. They were pure evil. They couldn't have good thoughts. They could not repent, because God did something to them, fixed them in their evil. Thankfully, men are not fixed in it in general. It's if they persist in it, they can be fixed. That's blaspheming the Holy Spirit. That's going to the point that God decides no more grace for this person. He did that to Pharaoh. He did that to King Saul. He removed himself, and demons terrorized him. And he died without God speaking to him in any good manner. Okay? So that happens to those 
who are extreme in the rebellion and their continuous rebellion against the Lord. Okay? So he's the only God. He's the eternal life. Okay? So he upholds everything. He's the God who keeps everything in order. All the laws and principles of the natural and spiritual universe are upheld by him. So he is to be honored and glorified forever. He is the only God, okay? Eternal life is, as Jesus said, to know the true God. That means relationship and fellowship. That is not talking about knowledge. Well, the majority of Christians, professing Christians, at judgment will say, Lord, Lord. Mentally, they acknowledge that he is the Son of God, and they believe he's their Lord. And he says, I never knew you, you cursed of my Father. He never acknowledged them as his. See, they're misguided. They were deceived, okay? And so he said, to know the true God and Jesus Christ whom he sent. So that's what eternal life's going to be the fullness of knowing God. People think this can be objects, and while we use gold as the streets, it means the highest thing or material that people consider a value is gold. It's a symbol of the divine nature, divine things. But in heaven, we walk on it. It's the least. So he's not talking about things and mansions and objects. He's talking about himself, to know God. And he says, you'll know him as the angels know him. And wherever the angels are ministering, Jesus said they always do the will of the Father. They are perfect in what they were made to do. They do not error. They do not sin. And they don't by choice or will or intention. And we will be as the angels when we cross over. And then there will be no barrier to our intimacy with God. Uh we will be made for what he wanted us to be made for, okay? Now's a good time to go to Titus, give you two scriptures, one in Titus 2.13. Paul believed that Jesus Christ was God, that he was the Almighty, the Everlasting Father, the Eternal One. See, he understood the Godhead. And when Jesus emptied himself of that in his earthly body, but when he ascended, he asked the Father to restore his glory that I had with you before the world was. He was the Word of God, one with them. But he was able to take on the human form and limit himself, and he did. He told the disciples, I am with you, but I shall be in you. As Jesus, he was not in them. He was confined to a body, to humanity. But when he resurrected and ascended to the Father, all his glory was there and returned to him. He is one with the Father and the Spirit. He is God. And people need to understand this, okay? And notice what Titus says in verse 2.13. We are looking for the blessed hope and glorious appearing of our great God, and Savior Jesus Christ. Actually, the and is not there in the original. What it actually says, a lot of translations need to translate it better. What it actually says is the great God, even our Savior Jesus Christ. Peter 
uh, Paul called him God. They made it plain who he was, okay? A lot of people, there's times that will say the Father and the Son, but there's times they're not to be separated. They're separated to explain what they were doing, what we call the Trinity, that the Word is not in Scripture. But they're one God. They do not do anything apart from the other. They're not separate that way. Okay? All ministries, all fruits come from the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And they always will. Okay. Now we go to Second Peter chapter 1, verse 1. Now to those who obtain like precious faith with us by the righteousness of of our God and Savior, Jesus Christ. Here, God and Savior are not separated. He's talking about the same person, okay? The righteousness of our God, Jesus Christ. See, he's the one here. At other times, the Father and His Son, we see a separation in their facts of how they act and what they do. But he makes it clear. And he even did it to Philip when he was on earth and confined the Father was in him. And when Philip said, show us the Father, and he said, how long have you been with me and you have not known me? He that have seen me, Jesus in the flesh, he says, have seen the Father. The Father condescended as the Holy Spirit to dwell in him as a man. See? And he was baptized with the Spirit. He did not need to be baptized with the Spirit if he was acting solely as God. Everything that Jesus basically did, he did as a man yielded to the Holy Spirit. He had to. He had to be the obedient servant. And a few times God glorified himself in him, but it was temporarily. But most miracles, healing, everything he did, he said, as I see the Father work, I work. He did it as the perfect servant. He did it as the man, Jesus. Uh-huh. And then he was acceptable when he run this life out and without sin, without failure. He obeyed the Father perfectly. So he was the perfect sacrifice, and God could use him to represent mankind, represent the sinner on the cross. He was made sin, the scripture says, for us, not for his own. He was punished for us, for humanity, not for his own sins. Uh -huh. And that pleased God. His holiness uh, was satisfied, okay? He was the representative. So he's one with the Father, and he is the Almighty. And Jesus, Paul said, is that spirit. As he indwells us as Christ. It's like the scripture said, again, Peter said, we've been given great promises, precious promises. And through these, we may partake of the divine nature. Christ in us is the divine nature. He could not be in anyone while he was confined to the earth. He was confined to his human body and soul and personality. Uh -huh. But now, that's why Paul uses that term so often, Christ in you, Christ in you. Christ is the divine God. He is the Almighty. And that's why Jesus said, those who keep my commandments, the Father and I, we will come and make our abiding place with him. And how will they do it? The Holy Spirit. He is the Spirit 
of the Father. He is the Spirit of Christ. He is Christ. So we cannot separate him like people try to do. We don't have three gods. We have one God who will manifest himself in what we call persons. That's the only way we understand it. But they're never separated, okay? They do everything together. And when God made man, he said, let us make man. The us is in the plural. But referring to God himself, he is one. He lets us know he is one. So we need to be careful not to go to these extremes as if we have three separate gods, because we don't. That would be idolatry, okay? And now he speaks to Timothy in verse 18. This command I entrust to you, Timothy, my son, in accordance with the prophecies previously made concerning you, that by them you may fight the fight. That's part of it. Okay, we'll go on later. So he considered him his son, his spiritual son, Titus also, and he was with them. And he may have gotten him saved. Not always clear, but he had something to do with it. And he had something to do with the prophecies. Once he said the prophecies that came through him, okay? So when God matured him and called him, he was given prophecies. And God often can do this. So you'll know your call and your duty, and you'll remember these things when you have to fight the good fight, a warfare of which you have been appointed. We've got to remember that. Often when God calls for ministry and service, and if there's a proper laying on of hands, then it was God often who would speak and prophesy and give them encouragement to what his will was. Otherwise, uh, most of this stuff that we find in denominations is empty hands being laid on empty heads. They're not called of God. They're going through pharisaical motions. God hasn't called them, and he's not going to appoint them, no matter what the denomination decides. They may make him a minister, but he's not a minister of the Lord, lest the Lord. Prophecy confirms what God intends to do, either right at the moment or what he has done. It's not totally left up to man. All prophecies are not by the will of man. They're by God's will. Man doesn't think them up. Man speaks them and brings forth what the Lord wants to do. All of the gifts, even the nine supernatural gifts of the Spirit, are done in conjunction with the Christian's consent. They do not overwhelm him. Paul said the spirit of prophets is subject to prophets. They do not overwhelm him. He can give prophets New Testament ones. He can give them a word, and they can give it days later. They can ponder it and pray about it and then give it in their own language as long as the spirit of the word is not altered. See, they have something to do with it. Otherwise, he could not hold them responsible. But Paul said, let the prophet speak two or three and let the others judge. The other what? The other prophets, not the congregation. Those who have the gift of prophecy and were called, they could pick it up real quickly. And if there's a slip up, they would correct it because he knows humanity is subject to be deceived and fall or be misguided. So it's not totally trusting man. 
but he makes provision. So every one of the nine gifts are not acted apart from the Christian. They are spoken. The only one that we can possibly say don't have to be spoken, the working of miracles God can do without the person's direct knowledge. He did it just by their presence and their anointing. That's why when Jesus was moving through the crowd, the woman touched his garment and was healed, and he said, who touched me? He had no direct dealing with her. A lot of them he laid hands on and spoke, but he said, who touched me? Simply his presence and her faith drew the power out of him, and God recognized it. And Jesus saw this with the Gentile. A couple of times he said, the woman and with the centurion, he said, I've not found this kind of faith, not among the Jews. They had all these rules you had to form before they really wanted to believe it was God. But the Gentiles were very trusting, and their faith alone overrode the law. It went to the higher ground, and God was moved. He laid aside the normal principles because of their faith. And he said, I've not found this kind of faith. No, not in Israel. So he was moved by people's faith and their right standing with God at whatever state they were in. Okay, so by the prophecies God calling you, you're to fight your fight of faith. You're going to have this. 19 says, keeping faith and a good conscience, which some have rejected and suffered shipwreck in regard to their faith. It means they're lost. They're backslidden. They've spurned grace. They're twice dead. See, people don't like that word back. Well, they think that means, well, I'm just not. Well, if you're not following the Lord, you're not his. Don't be arguing and splitting hairs like the Pharisees did. Oh, I've had people tell me, well, I'm a Christian, but I'm having an affair right now. I said, because you're not a Christian. You lost it. You're deceived. I said, read Paul. He names idolatry and fall. And he says, if you do this, you'll not inherit the kingdom of God. Why won't you inherit the kingdom of God? Because you're not a Christian. And when the man was creating problems in the Corinthian church and sleeping with his father's concubine and he didn't repent, they threw him out. And Paul said, put that wicked person away from you. He never called a true Christian a wicked person. Well, this one was. He had been warned and did not repent. Therefore, he was put out and the Holy Spirit withdrew from him. He came back later and they had a hard time accepting him. And Paul had to say, now you got to take him back. He's truly repentant. But at the time, he was a wicked person as far as God was concerned. Okay. So if one is not faithful to Christ, his will and word, one has not the faith of Jesus. That's the fight of faith. If one has a guilty conscience and is condemned for doing something, one cannot walk in the Spirit. See, Paul said, if you walk after the Spirit, you'll live eternal life. But if you walk after the flesh, you'll die. And he meant eternally. He's talking to the Christian. He's saying you have the will and the capacity to follow who you want. But if you come with Christ, you have to keep following him. If you enter the race, you have to keep running. If you have the pilgrimage, you have to be faithful to the end, or you're not going to make it, okay? Now look at 1 John chapter 3, 18. 
Well, we'll start with 18. My little children, let us not love in word or tongue, but in deed and in truth, in works and in truth. That's what deed means. People don't like the word works because they want to think it's all faith and grace. They're lying shepherds. It's not taught in the scripture. And that's what Paul and, and James meant. Faith not works is dead. Paul says the same thing a different way. He said, because we're under grace, can we continue in sin? He said, God forbid. Don't you know that whoever you obey, that's who your master is? Obedience is the works, is the spiritual work. He said, if you obey righteousness, you get eternal life. If you obey sin, eternal death. He made it very plain. This is the man who taught grace and faith. He said, don't you know it's who you obey? And James says, don't you know your works prove your faith? It's not the other way around. See, there is no irresistible grace. There is no once saved, always saved. These are false shepherds, lying shepherds inspired by the devil, giving people false peace. No, if you don't continue with the Lord, and if you don't bear fruit, bearing fruit is not only the life of Christ, it's spiritual works, it's obedience. That's what it is. It's following and being led by the Spirit of Christ. Okay. So he wants you to understand this. Okay. And then he says something interesting. And we know this, or shall know this, that we are of the truth while when we're doing these actions, when we're bearing fruit, when we're obeying him. And what does he say? Then our heart condemns us, or if it does, God is greater than the heart and knows all things. He's talking about your conscience. The heart is the spirit of man, and the conscience dwells in the spirit of man. And he's saying, if your conscience is bothering you, how much more do you think God knows? Your conscience can be limited in enlightenment, but God is not. So he sees that everything. He sees it more clearly, okay? So, beloved, if our heart does not condemn us, our conscience, we have confidence toward God. We have faith. See, you cannot truly have real faith in the Lord when you know something's wrong. You're not in a position to pray for anybody or yourself until you deal with these things. See, people think they'll ignore them and go on. It don't work that way. If your conscience is bothering you as a Christian, you better get it right because everything else don't mean nothing. Everything you do, all your religiosity, your praying is vain. He's looking at that one thing. So Paul was very clear on maintaining a clear conscience. And he said he always tried to do this, okay? And whatsoever we ask, we receive from him. See, that's faith. Faith comes by hearing the word of God and believing it and knowing what? That you're right with the Lord. He said, so if we keep his commandments, his will, and what he's telling us, the conscience approves us. And if we do those things that are pleasing in his sight, our conscience will tell you if you're not, unless you've said it, it'll make you uncomfortable. And he says, and if you make those things right, then you can have faith when you pray. Otherwise, God's not interested in the prayer of the double-minded. It means they're up and they're down, they're back and they're full. No matter what they believe, their heart's not right, their conscience not right. And James makes it very plain. 
He said, if you're double-minded, he said, don't think you're going to receive anything from the Lord. See, God is not interested in the sinner's prayers. Oh, he can be merciful and do what he wants in certain cases, but he don't answer in general the sinner's prayer except for the prayer of repentance. They're not in the covenant. They're not pleasing to him. They shouldn't expect anything from him if they have a wicked conscience, and the wicked do. But when they get desperate, they think somehow God's going to do this and that. And even if he does something sometime, they don't respond properly. And so they're going to answer more at Judgment Day. Uh But he's not required to answer them. They're his enemies. They're at enmity with God. He tells them that. Uh So many, many people think they're Christians. Well, maybe some of them were at one time, but they're not anymore. They're living in gross sin. They're not obeying the Lord. They're selfish and self-oriented. It shows you Christ is not in them. He's not producing anything godly in them, okay? So he's telling us, Paul, don't just love people and God with your words. It doesn't mean nothing when a husband tells his wife how much he loves her when she knows he's having an affair. She knows he's a hypocrite and a liar. He may have an emotional feeling for her, but he doesn't love her according to Scripture because he'd be faithful to her. See, he's a liar, and the truth's not in him. And like a man told me one time, and he was living in adultery with his wife, and he told me, because he thought I was a Christian, he said, well, I do love God, and I shocked him, and I said, you don't. And he said, well, you don't know my heart. I said, I do know it. You just told me. You're having an affair, and you're married, and you say you love God. Well, God said, if you don't keep his commandments, and you say you love him, you're a liar, and the truth's not in you. Well, he almost fired me. I didn't care, but he come back later and apologized, but he thought over what I told him. I said, you have a sentimental feeling. You like God on your terms. I said, but this is the love of God, John says. You keep his commandments. So anybody says they love God and they're living in gross sin and not obey him, they are a liar and they're a child of the devil, okay? We need to make it plain to these people so they won't have a false concept and be speechless at the day of judgment because instantly they're going to know the truth and their mouth's going to open because they're going to see how deceived they were and that it's too late to do anything about it, okay? So prayer to God is vain if our conscience condemns our actions and motives before God. Most prayer is selfish and simple people, and a lot of novices and ignorant Christians that need to be straightened out, they are worldly desires. They try to please God because they want something from him. They're supposed to please God anyway. And he don't bargain with them. He's not going to give them something coveting. He don't answer sinful prayers. And people will say, well, God gave me this. God, No, your greed got it for you. Don't attribute to God evil. That's what the Pharisees did. And Jesus said they blasphemed the Holy Spirit. You do not attribute these things to God. So he's telling you right off. If your conscience condemns you, you better get right and get it straight. So God hears pure motives and desires from a heart that pleases him. So most Christian prayers should basically not be for themselves. But that's what you find is 
I want this, I want that. And Jesus already spoke on the subject to Paul. He said, be content with such things as you have, for I'll never leave nor forsake you. And he told the rich that, be content, for you have too much money. He said, it'll drown you in hell. See, he knew what coveting would do. Seven times or so, he mentions wealth, and he never gives one affirmative of having it. He gives the warning twice. Uh If you are rich as a Christian, if you do have an abundance, he said, be abundant in good works. It means God's going to expect more of you. He's not giving it to you to squander on yourself. See, these prosperity people think God wants them to live in luxury and have mansions. and all. They're coveting and greedy, and they're children of the devil. Uh-huh. And that's all they ever talk about is the homes, the house, what God give, how much money they make, because they're tied to this world. And Jesus made it very plain. He said, having food and raiment, be content. We cannot complain if we don't have more than that. So we ought to be thankful for what we have. And he did say, John and Paul said, if you have from God and he's given you, then be thankful, enjoy it. So he said, there's a place of moderation. We can enjoy things we have in moderation. But when it becomes luxury and selfishness and extravagance, that reveals a coveting heart. That reveals a heart that's bound to this world and not the spiritual realm. And they can argue all they want about it, but they're not going to win with God. So if a person claims to be a Christian minister and he's got a a half a billion dollars and he dies with that, I I doubt seriously he's going to make it into the kingdom. Why wasn't it used for the kingdom? Why wasn't it under God's control? He was a steward of God, not an owner. So we need to remember that uh, when we are blessed Ecclesiastes, God sets prosperity against adversity. So we, our life outwardly can be up and down. We can be pleased in the Lord and have financial problems at times. We can be not pleased in the Lord and have an abundance of money. See, people make that the sign because they're coveting the God of this world. They think they should be rich if God loves them. They're king's kids. There's no teaching in Scripture. Every man is appointed a lot and should live within that lot and not be coveting and jealous of other people's lot. You just remember, if they got a lot more than you, they're going to answer for a lot more if they don't use it properly. So let them enjoy it. It's going to be used for their damnation if they squander God's things on selfishness and worldly luxury and entertainments of the world at the expense Of doing God's will. Now, when God told the person that gave, He said, God is able to give grace towards you that you will have an abundance. All the prosperity people stop right there that you will have an abundance. They don't read the rest of the verse. Abundance for liberal ministry, for helping others. Didn't mention the self here. So, when people have that kind of money, they should realize I have a responsibility to God and His people and God's plans. But they love just, I'll have an abundance. See, because they're still coveting. They're still of the world. And Paul says, and you know, a covetous person is an idolater. And you know, no idolater 
will enter the kingdom of God. He makes it plain. They need to be studying that scripture more than the materialistic ones, okay? So prayer is vain to God if the conscience condemns our actions and motives before God. If God is to be obeyed, he is to be obeyed in everything. People think they do this and that, and they sort of bargain with God. Well, he'll let me get away with this because I do this. He won't. He'll judge you more severely because you should know better. And if you can't obey your conscience, you don't need to be trying to do anything for the Lord because to him, it's an abomination. The gifts of the wicked, the sacrifices of the wicked are an abomination to the Lord. They were not to bring offerings before the Lord in Moses' time. They could bring a curse on them. The thief and the prostitute were not to give and bring anything to the chest before the temple. God would consider it an insult. See, they're buying their conscience off. A lot of these mob leaders, when they die, they leave a lot of money to the church. They think it's going to help them because they know they're wicked. But they think, well, if I do this at the last moment, I'll buy my way into the kingdom. They're going to be totally deceived. And they're going to find out even doing that is a greater sin that they're going to be punished for. Okay? The wicked shall never understand because he's wicked. He said, the way of righteousness is made plain to the righteous, but the wicked shall never understand. See, the carnal mind cannot fathom how God thinks. So he'll try to manipulate and bargain with him. And that in itself is evil. Yeah. See, most prayer is simply of worldly desires. A lot of Christian prayers I hear, they're simply they're from the world. People say, will you pray this? I said, no, I can't pray that. And they look at your puzzle. See, they know they can't get God to answer their prayers, and they think you're closer to God that you can pray, and God will answer you. Isn't that evil? See, they don't see how evil that is. <laughs> Trying to manipulate God. Go around the back door, since he won't give me anything. Well, it don't work that way. Whatever happened to cross-bearing and denying one's way for Christ? You don't hear much of that anymore, do you? Because you don't have many disciples. God hears pure motives and desires from a pure conscience. And a pure conscience means you're not willingly rebelling against any actions that God has told you to do or not to do. So Paul then says, some of you, some of you among you, have made shipwreck. It was the ship of faith. They were on the right ship. They were headed to the eternal haven. But something happened. They had truth. And then they rejected it later and made shipwreck. They weren't professing Christians. They were Christians at one time. Okay? They didn't keep faith and a good conscience. They didn't fight the fight of faith. They lost. Okay? They were overcome by their greed, by false teachers giving them things they wanted to hear instead of the sound truth that they had. So they rejected truth later. They lost their Christianity, and they lost the true faith. They were cut off. As Jesus said, if you don't bear fruit, every branch in me, there's no way around that. It means every person that's in me that's a Christian, because they will bear fruit. 
of the vine. He said, and when they stop to do that, it means they will not to let the vine's life go through them. They had something to do with it. They didn't have anything to do with it. And he said, and the Father will cut them off and burn them. Okay. He said, the Father does this. See? They refuse to keep bearing fruit. They refuse to keep running the race. They didn't hold on. So they made shipwreck of their spirituality, of their Christianity. Okay, They were deceived by fallen and fake teachers and false teachers. Grace given in vain, denying the Lord after one has once followed him, brings a greater, greater punishment. Okay? They'll answer for more. Okay. Let us stop here because I want to spend some time on Alexandra in our next uh, lesson. So we're going to stop at verse 19. Lord, give us wisdom and practical application of how we're to walk with you each day. In Jesus' name, amen.